You're listening to Money Making Mothers with Carla Edwards, where we discuss the highs and lows of being a working parent, how to master the art of spinning plates, and remind ourselves that just because you became a mother does not mean your dreams no longer exist. You can have it all. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Money Making Mothers, where I am joined by Heidi. Now, this lady is absolutely phenomenal. Um, This episode is going to pull on your heartstrings, be inspirational, and also make you really think about how lucky you are to not only be healthy, but have healthy children and live the life you do. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed interviewing her. Hello there, everybody, on this lovely summery day in Bristol. Um, my name is Heidi Lachlan, and I am a 37, about to be 38-year-old mum of two. Um, today, I have been cajoled by Carla to come along and bore you within an inch of your life for 30 minutes about my life Uh Oh, not all of it because it's a long time um the last sort of 12 what five or six years really which it, i would say slightly unusual maybe something you haven't heard before and you'll think it's bollocks but it isn't it's not a shit um storyline for like eastenders or anything it's absolutely real um and it's basically my uh my take on everything that's happened um so i hope you like it carla's told me she's gonna ask me four questions and told me to talk for as long as possible well i'm a massive waffler so if we (laughs) fit this into 30 minutes i'll be gobsmacked Um, and carla's been told that she's got to keep her mouth shut so i'm interested to see how that's going to go to be honest (laughs) take it away carla Uh, right so i'm going to try my best to keep my mouth shut as much as i can um First question I want to ask you, love, is why do you do what you do? There's a few reasons that I do what I do. Um, Initially, when I I started becoming a blog writer, um, because I wanted to raise awareness about a situation that I found myself in, which was being diagnosed with an extremely rare form of breast cancer called inflammatory breast cancer. Um, And that was also while I was pregnant. Um, And uh, that was very difficult. (laughs) Something I'd never, never dealt with. I'd never known anybody who'd had cancer in pregnancy. Um, And, you know, it was a really unusual cancer that had been misdiagnosed several times. And I was motivated to start writing and talking about it because, quite frankly, I was pissed off that I hadn't heard about it and that my doctors hadn't heard about it. And subsequently, the midwife hadn't heard about it. And I thought that was crazy in this sort of day and age. Um, so I thought, well, I felt so out of control being diagnosed with cancer at the age of 32. Um, so I grabbed hold of one thing that I could control. And I thought, right, what can I do? Rather than this all being shit and negative from straight off the bat, I can maybe do something to maybe stop this happening from somebody else, which is a classic cliche that we all sort of pump out there that we want this never to happen to someone else. But actually, I, that's exactly how I felt. If there was some opportunity for me to stop this um, from happening to somebody else, I could do that by putting inflammatory breast cancer on the radar of women and not just women 
um, that are a lot older, that seem to be more in tune with their bodies, people our age um, that actually just always think that it's nothing when, yeah. because we've historically been told breast cancer is for people in their 60s or whatever, um, raising awareness about the fact that actually that's not always the case. So that is why I started talking about it um, and started writing a blog and which I, to be honest, never thought anyone would read because I'm not exactly a writer. Um, but oh, I like to swear and apparently people like to hear people swearing and it went down really well and it was very um, warts and all because that's ex exactly like I am. Gross details of chemo and this that and the other and really um, yeah like keeping it real um because can't we know there's no two ways about it cancer is a big steaming pile of shit but when you're a person that sort of deals with humor in your life like me everything not everything's a joke but I, that's one of my coping strategies is always to try and look on the bright side of things and and try and laugh my way through things I just thought, well, I can't be the only person. And so many blogs out there, when I looked, were all really depressing. Like, woe is me, which I understand, because it is shit, and you should, you're allowed to feel sorry for yourself. But actually, I wanted to read something that was a little bit more like, yeah, it's shit. However, these are the normal things that I'm going through day to day, and I'm still finding time to laugh. So I wanted to push that on to other people. So the more the blog got shared, and it was you know, and it is worldwide, it has a worldwide following now, uh, Storm in a Tick Cup. Um, you know, it just, it motivated me to keep, to keep going because obviously there were so many people out there like getting in touch saying, oh my God, I'm so relieved to finally read something. It isn't all fucking depressing. And I thought, well, yeah, because I know I'm not unique. I know I'm not the only one who wants to deal with things like that. So it just, you know, that kept me going. And the more sort of support and everything that I got from other people, the more empowered I felt. Um, and I felt like I was doing something when everything else around me was like blowing up. I felt that that's the one thing I could control. So it kind of went from there really. God, that was a long answer, wasn't it? Oh, so what did it go from the blog? What did that mm. turn into? So, so, after, so from the blog, um, I then started doing TV, um, radio, um you know which was a massive it was a big news story um a woman you know with rare type of cancer is pregnant because I declined um treatment so that I could carry on with my pregnancy and while some people thought that I was really selfish because I already had two other children um at home that needed me a lot of people thought it was incredibly brave I didn't think one way or the other in a lot of ways. I just had to deal with what I was dealing with, which is that I had a third child coming that um, I loved just as much as the two that were already here. And I knew me, I'd lived with me for 32 years and I knew that I couldn't go through with an abortion, which is what I was informed was probably the best decision to make because cancer was spreading really, really rapidly because it had been undiagnosed for about nine months by the time I, I, that it was found out by the time um, I actually listened to you yeah but you know it was the third doctor that I'd seen that actually said yeah no that isn't what they thought it was which was mastitis I kept being told repeatedly because I was still breastfeeding my second son I was repeatedly told I had mastitis and I was like you know when you, know, when you just know it yes that's not the case 
And I suppose because I'm a bit stubborn and I kept going back, that's probably in a lot of ways, which in the long run helped me. But I'd gone for nine months with this cancer that can double in size in 72 hours. It's really, really aggressive. Um, But then I declined treatment to carry on with my pregnancy. So it was headline news because I'd written the blog and people were picking up on it. It was being shared all over the place. So then I was doing uh, regional news and then national news. And I was going on chat shows and I was in magazines and all this, you know, all on off the, the back of, of trying to raise awareness. And I don't always swear. Obviously, I don't swear when I'm on the TV or the radio. <laughs> and so was able to put across, I guess, a fairly succinct story. And people liked to listen to it. Not everyone, mind. A lot of people were like, oh that she's a just another loudmouth blogger and all that rubbish and uh but a lot of people did really like it and um the gift of the gab some people would say but it's probably more that I've just get verbal diarrhea um and so from that I um a lady called Tony Smith approached me she was one of my blog followers and she hounded me about coming to speak a, a big uh, network called the Primus Network and um, would I, you know, how would I feel about appearing in front of 800 people? Oh my God, I would shit my pants was my reply. Um, how would I feel about doing that um, and telling my story um, and being interviewed? And I thought, well, if I can do it in front of a camera that goes to millions of people, surely I can do it on stage. And in the end, because it's Tony was so... <laughs> Pardon? Well, yeah, the thing is... You, you can just, you sort of block, you block, you block them out to a certain extent. Um, a camera is so much easier, but with the people in the audience, I just thought, oh, sod it, you know, pretend they're naked or, or whatever, which was quite, quite good fun. Um, you know, I thought in the end, yeah, all right, I'll give it a go. And from there, I was able to basically carve out a, a really good career as a speaker people call it a motivational speaker which makes me feel really cringy because I don't feel like I'm going in to motivate people um I just I'm a speaker or um, you know some will say inspirational inspirational to me well no because that's not my intention I'm just going out there to tell a story to raise awareness and uh slightly entertain people about cancer which is a bit weird it's a bit niche well that's where um where I'd heard obviously from through through you doing that at Primus and then coming to see us up here in the north, I've never I've never had so many emotions in, in one sitting as when I listen to you and just I think what you do is incredible. So I think oh, I think you are inspiring no matter what way you want to look at it. You definitely are inspiring, but at the same time it's weird because you make people feel happy as well because it's you know you how you took everything that's happened and still making a joke out of it like it's yeah and I think that's a great feeling to know that I can get that across to people and they don't just necessarily walk out feeling oh my god that poor tragic woman and everything that's happened to her that they that people can come away going oh my god that poor tragic woman what's happened to her but oh my god she's so like full of life because what happened was after I declined the treatment knowing full well the risks I was taking um my baby was born 28 weeks planned premature birth um 
and was extremely healthy for a 28 weeker and as life shits out these curveballs as it does my daughter Ali caught an infection in hospital completely unrelated to anything else that she'd already been through with me having chemo whilst pregnant um, she died and it was not something that I think in my head I thought when you've had so much crap already surely no more crap will come and then when that happened I don't it's hard to explain it's a real a real kick in the kick in the teeth a kick in the guts um unreal I felt I couldn't actually quite believe what was happening um that everything we'd been through to that point and you know I'd risk my life for her so romantically and poetically obviously she was going to be fine she had a 95% chance of survival being born at 28 weeks I couldn't carry her to term because I would have died um because the cancer was spreading so much so when she died it was unreal um and just more than maybe what people think when they have a trauma in their life that they're never going to get something like that so then I had to go on to have uh more treatment um treatment that she'd been born early to enable me to have which made me feel completely responsible for her death uh initially and that as her mum I should have held on and just I should have died for her um because that's what a mother would do and I was prepared to do that but because the statistics 95% chance of survival at that time it just made complete sense that then I would be there to also bring her up because then I could go on for treatment but the way I'd seen it is I'd made I'd made the I'd knocked on the wrong door I don't or opened the wrong door when there was all these doors of choices about what I should and shouldn't do I'd pick the wrong fucking door and it was horrific and in that time that that haze of grief um I found out the cancer was incurable anyway so I thought of course it fucking is um you know that's what that's what's the case isn't it that's going to be the fucking case like the cancer's incurable probably gonna that was my dark negative moments I'm probably gonna fucking die now anyway after everything that's happened I'm not going to be here for the boys my daughter's died um you know cancer's incurable and actually it was looking where things were looking really bad for me um wasn't necessarily given a death date but we were looking at probably about 12 months from that point um inflammatory breast cancer generally carries a two to five year prognosis upon diagnosis um and when you're stage four you're at the the two year end of that spectrum and i'd already had it for a year so we were looking at at 12 months um and that's a lot to deal with it's a lot to deal with you know i'm not going to see my two boys start school because they were only one and three just after ali had uh, died we were grieving the death of um our daughter um i felt responsible for that um and this was all playing out in the public eye and obviously then there was the trolls that come with that and people who were like yeah well that's what she deserves she should I lie in her cancer bed and die um you know that baby's better off dead than with a mother selfish mother You're like her and and that's no totally not joking that's the kind of pond life that does um fester on our planet unfortunately um 
and they're the comments that you do remember but overwhelmingly the support I had was absolutely amazing you know from people that I never have never met and never will meet from all over the world just sending so much support and positivity to us that and having been a police officer for 12 years where you become extremely cynical it was amazing experience for me in that respect because it made me realize that actually my fellow human being fundamentally was good um but then I had to I was forced into a position where if I had 12, 12 months to live um two kids to raise a daughter to grieve and bury and all those things um but also only 12 months in which to try and make some kind of impact on my kids that potentially wouldn't remember me and it's a lot of pressure i can't honestly i can't even i can't even comprehend that in my head i just every time i hear it it gets it just doesn't seem like that's real life that you have to well, it's insane. no it it was it was like falling off a cliff. And this is what I say uh, when I'm depressing people in my talks, um, is that it is like falling off the edge of a cliff and not knowing when you're going to hit the bottom, what you're going to look like when you hit the bottom, if you're going to recover, how the fuck do you stop falling? Um, and the initial fall is shock, fear, complete lack of control. And I needed to get a grip of myself where I thought, right, how can I survive this for whatever time that's going to be and that's trying to as a climber your men are turned to the cliff face and grab hold of anything you can and get three points of contact and and that's what I tried to do and there were many things that caught me but the main thing was the children um because I couldn't have Ali's life just be about ever complete and utter sadness and you know feeling guilt and everything and I needed the two boys, whatever time that was they had left with me, to be positive so that their memories of me weren't all sad and dark. So it was grabbing these bits of rock coming off the cliff and trying to slow myself down and then think how I was going to pull myself back up again for whatever time that would be. And the more steps I took back up that cliff face, the stronger I felt and the more determined and I, you know, my realization in all of that was I, I have no control over when I'm going to die, just like you and everybody listening. We have no control over that. Yeah. Uh, we're all going to die. Shock, horror, headline news, you know, we're all going to die. Um, but you're in control of how you get to that point, whenever that point will be. And what do you want that time to be like? Do you want it to just be total fear of what is the inevitable? or letting it go and enjoying that time that you have in whatever way that is, whatever it is you want to do. And I, my punchline is exist in fear and sadness or live in strength and happiness, exist or live. And I wanted to live. I was just determined and really stubborn and an angry Bristolian. And I was not having my headstone read Heidi Lachlan, sad mum dies of cancer it was that was just not going to be me I had so much more to do in whatever short period of time that was going to be and that was at the end of 2015 Jesus Christ. and I am not coming at you from beyond the grave I am still very <laughs> alive and well in alive <laughs> exactly I am alive and I am an enigma and it is people are surprised oh my god you, you know you're not 
dead. Yeah, like, I, I completely, I don't care what anyone says, I completely believe that that's a lot to do with your mindset and attitude. You never give up. You climbed the cliff, you kept going, and you faced what most people would have hid from and just accepted and give up. Yeah. Well, it's it certainly hasn't worked against me being positive and stubborn and that's not to say I'm some robot that is always like happy 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 or you know there are moments of of shit darkness and feeling sorry for yourself but they pass really quickly because I realize in those moments oh I feel really crap because I feel crap yeah so what you allowed to do Jesus yeah, but then you pull yourself out quicker because you realise it's just so much easier to just get on with life. And I certainly don't wake up every morning thinking, oh my God, I've got cancer. And I've, I don't. There are days that go by when I don't even think about it. Ali's different. I think of Ali all the time. Yeah. Um, and that's something you, you don't ever get over it. It's something that grief just runs alongside your life and you learn how to manage it. And, that, and that's it. When they say time's a healer, it's I'd, I'd, personally, I don't believe it's a healer. I just believe it's a it's a more of a coping mechanism that you, you totally it, it. You just become more equipped to deal with it. That's yeah. it. it. Becomes the you, norm. You don't get it? over it. No. There are certain things in life. Like I'm not mourning my boyfriend who dumped me when I was 18. I can't even remember <laughs> his name. There are things that you I bet obviously you get over. I bet he's like, oh, gutted. <laughs> I do, especially when all my hair fell out. He must have looked at me for wow, she's fit. <laughs> but yeah um i can't even remember the question now but i've waff- i've waffled oh, no no you've you've, you've, covered it, you've covered it love but like i say every single time every single every single time i hear that story it just gets me and i know it will for everyone listening because it really is incredible um then the other thing i want to ask is how do you find juggling what you do in terms of working and, and, and having an income with a mother, with being a mother? Yeah, so it's, it is really, really um, hard, like it is for any parent trying to juggle um, all the different things going on in life. I have to be super organised. Um, I've had to get to a point, things have got, obviously, with lock, lockdown aside, um, I love talking and I love meeting people, uh, but I had to be really organised and I had to start to get to a point where I had to turn things down. So... I had to be very selective on on the jobs that I took on. Um, It either had to be something that paid really well. (laughs) That's the shallow part of it. Um, Made a difference to somebody um, or got me into a position where I would have a new experience of some kind because I'm all about new experiences. If somebody rang me and said, hey, how do you feel about wing walking? I'd be like, I'm there. Where is it? Like anything like that, any, pardon? Which you have actually done. Which I have actually done. I'm actually sat in my wing walker um, aerobatics t-shirt as we speak. Yeah. Um, So anything like that. So um, because you get inundated with requests to do things all the time that are obviously uh, for free for charities and things like that. And I totally understand that. But unfortunately, I got to the point because I just never wanted to say no to anybody. Say yes to everything. And I realized, oh, my God, I'm never at home. Yeah. This is really bad. I, you know, the whole reason I do what I'm doing is is 
for the kids and for myself and that I'm spending the whole time going bouncing up and down the country to all these different things which are helping other people but are not helping my family yeah. so I had to really sort of hone down the, the things that I would agree and not agree uh, to do and people feel really conflicted about stuff like that it's really hard to say no to people but um, some very wise people who are much, much better at all these kinds of things than me and much, and I like super famous people and incredible people sat me down and said, this is how you've got to do it. It's not about being ruthless. It's about prioritizing your family. Yeah. So it, it's got to help your family. Well, like you, because that can't have been very good for you mentally going up and down the country doing everything. No, because you don't know your ass from your elbow after a while and it does get really difficult. So I just had to get a bit, a bit, a bit more of a backbone to be able to say to me, I'm, I'm really sorry. I might be able to do it next year, but I can't do it this year because I'm already away like 10 times that month and I, I just can't do it. And it's the juggle of, you know, um, the kids being the main thing. And obviously the school day is, is very short. Um, and I've also got horses, which are a huge priority of mine. But even though one threw me off this week and has given me a concussion, I still love him very dearly. You played a game uh, of Boogaloo, didn't you, this week, Heidi? Oh, my God. He was determined. He literally, six bucks in the space of about a second. And there was no way I was sitting on that. So it fell off, landed on my ass, and then smacked my head off the floor. Um, so that was great fun. But it keeps you alive, reminds you very much that you're alive. And uh, yeah, it's only a bit of concussion. I'll be fine. I'm all right now. So, um, but yeah, it's just a, it's a juggling act. And I, you know, I had to work out, really had to run a diary properly and, yeah. and that kind of thing. But just like anyone that works, it is really hard. And fundamentally or historically, should I, should I say, a lot of the time that role does rest with the, the, the mother of the family to juggle all these things. But I th in our household I feel like we've moved a, a, a lot further beyond that and there's a lot of give and take um in here and also I have an amazing mother who does lots of childcare for me so um I'm really lucky in that respect and also really good network of friends so all my friends that I grew up with still live in my town yeah. and we've all got kids the same age so we do um swap kids around a bit sometimes because we're all working mums so yeah it's just you know, like yours is especially more difficult because it's not it's not routine is it uh -uh. like somewhere one time you know you're going to be home another time it's literally sporadic. Yeah. it's it can be anything anywhere so that yeah. part I think must be so hard to to to, to organize because it's it not can be hard to organize there's a lot of traveling that goes on but I can't sit here and make you feel sorry for me because there's nothing more peaceful than sitting on a train reading a book. Because how often when you're at home do you ever get a couple of hours where you haven't got someone going, I've, I need you to wipe my bum. Oh, you know, the dog's just chewed one of the shoes downstairs or, you know, there's a, someone's done something. Oh, he's wiped a bogey on me. Like you don't ever really get any time. Just I used to lock myself in the bathroom and pretend I was going for like a minute poo just yeah sitting on a train for like three hours sometimes it's blissful it becomes a chore when it's back-to-back -back traveling but I also got to that point where um I tried to negotiate my dates a lot better rather than being like oh I can do any time that suits you yeah. um 
I've been a bit more like I try to aim for one trip a week if I can because that's three days away then because I've got a day traveling a day at the conference and a day um, coming back so that's hard but then a lot of the time with conferences obviously there's none at the moment but they have fixed dates and you've just got you either got to do the work or you don't so I have to be mindful of that as well and uh, like I don't like seeing no to people so yeah but like I try to work prioritize don't you the needs to come yeah just prioritize definitely um so what has been in terms of obviously uh, this is going to be really hard to answer but the most difficult time of the journey so far in terms of from when you started doing you know the the inspirational parking and the, the, the the up and down the country what what part of that's been the most difficult the work part you mean yeah um it was probably it's there's been a couple of instances there was one you know I never let a client down ever and there was a job that I took that was down south and I was really ill and I still did it and they had no idea that I was really ill but I was really ill I had like a you get pick when you pick up a bug it's like you've got it for the first time because your immune system's whacked and you feel like absolute death and you know I put this brave face on for the whole time I was down there and it was this amazing conference and I really wanted to stay for the evening but I was hanging out of my backside and uh and I remember luckily my friend had come with me and I got into the car and I just literally slept the whole way home and it was just before Christmas and then I was on my backside then for like five days really poorly um that was really hard because when you're self-employed obviously as everyone will know that if you don't work you don't get paid and also being a speaker you've got a reputation if you end up being somebody that cancels even with the most legitimate reason in the world yeah you're really letting somebody down and pressure isn't it jesus to like it's a lot of pressure it's an awful lot of pressure and um you know and you've got to really pull it out the bag. You can't go on stage and do a half-assed job. You've got to give everybody what what they really want. And actually, funnily enough, it's probably one of my most successful talks that I've given. Um, probably because lying on your back for five days afterwards. Yeah, exactly. All the energy went into that, and the turkey was just rubbish then on Christmas Day. But that was really difficult. But also, generally, at the beginning of the speaking, after the event that I did with Tony at Primus, um, I did a couple of other jobs after that. And I was really struggling because it was really, I started speaking really soon after Ali had died. How soon was it? Probably about six months. Was it? Yeah, it's, it was really soon. That's aside from all the TV stuff I'd done because that because we were filming a documentary throughout the whole of the pregnancy and everything as well. Oh man, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's not something I necessarily always talk about actually um, because people are like, "What?" So there was a film crew there when she was born. Um, we had documentary crew. It was for the Discovery Channel. Um, it's called Extraordinary Pregnancies. Um, and I can tell every time it goes out somewhere in the world because I get a huge flurry of. Um, oh, you have to watch that. I didn't even know. Yeah, that. if you can find it, it's it's out there somewhere. I get a big flurry of um, followers from a certain random part of the world where the documentary has been aired because obviously it was filmed like five years ago now. Um, but in so when I first started speaking properly, then at these events, um, I would get I'd obviously take people through 
the the story step by step and I would get to the point about Ali and then I couldn't bounce back yeah so people would be leaving feeling extremely sad and that's it's not what I wanted but I think I feel like I was going into maybe too much detail about her actual death because I was grieving openly on stage in front of people and actually um do I regret it no because it's all part it's all part I I mean what I the product that I am now is very fully functioning and sure without all those experiences would I be as open and everything as I am because you can say I bet that actually in some weird way probably helped with the recovery because you were probably talking about it more than you would if you were not doing that yeah exactly and the more you do it you you toughen up don't you as a human being that's how we deal with things and that's why it's never a good thing to sit on your feelings because the more you share it you take a piece of the fear away every time and you don't ever want to have areas that are no go and and like in in the literal sense Ali was born at um, Southmead Hospital in Bristol and I went through my pregnancy with one of my best friends Lucy and she was due a baby not long after Ali's what would have been her original due date if she'd been full term and I'd always wanted to be a birthing partner at a birth. And she still, even after Ali died, she still said, would you know, do you want to do it? So I found myself back at Southmead where Ali was born and had died oh about God. five months after she died as a birthing partner for my friend. And there are people that said to me, how could you even enter that building? How on earth could you watch a baby being born? How could you do that? And I said, it's just a building. It's, it's an experience wholly separate to the one that I've had, even to the point the midwives recognised me and were like, oh, you're Heidi, oh, you know, no, that lady. That and I was like, I am. They're like, how are you here? And I'm like, because I'm here. This is what I want to do. And honestly, it made it, you don't ha- want to have places that you can never go to because they just build, it's a, bub- a fear bubble that it just will build and build and build. Like dates, oh, well, I, you know, on her birthday every year, you must lock yourself in a room and just bawl your eyes out. Mm, I don't. It's, I think of her every single day. I honour her every single day. But that day is still just a date. It's still a day of the week. It's still a certain year. You know, I know mums that have lost babies that in the month that they died will grieve that entire month every single year. So every single year, they know for 28 to 31 days, they're going to be desperately sad. Yeah. Now, that for me doesn't work. I don't want to have areas, emotions or physical places in my life that I cannot go. And You're just insanely an... strong, insane. You are. I'm sorry, there's no two ways about it. You are bloody strong. Because for you, I think as well, you're very, very selfless. Like you're one of the most selfless people I've ever met because to do that for your friend and put yourself through a risk of what you could have put yourself into which was a turmoil of emotions is just incredible you are Mm. thank you um now this one is (laughs) there's so much because i know the boy obviously the boys know what you do don't they and why you do it yes yeah so are they old enough to get it or not do they just think they're talking on stage or do they get what you're doing 
they they because I've got a book, they refer to me to all their mates as a famous writer, which always oh, cracks me up because no one's ever heard of me. Um, <laughs> my mum said we went to an Airbnb, which is a bit naughty because I'm banned from Airbnb. Okay. Probably aware of for a wholly different reason, <laughs> which is probably a whole podcast worth of information. Uh, booked under somebody else's name, we um, went to an Airbnb in August. And the woman who owns the Airbnb lived on site in a separate building. And she came over one day and uh, to my youngest Tate said, oh, would you like to come pick some blackberries with me? And off he went. And she was like, oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, he, and apparently he said to her, my mum is really famous in England, but she's not here in Wales, which was we were 25 minutes from Bristol. And he was going, mm-hmm. you know, over here in Caleon, uh, my mum's not famous, but in England, she's really famous and she writes loads of books because I have three. I made there were 3000 copies of the book that I wrote. He, they think I wrote each individual copy oh. of the book, which is really sweet. And so the li- the lady went up to one of the other girls and went, uh, is one of the mums here, like, really famous? Because her son's just told me she is. And it was just so funny because they've got absolutely no concept. But it is weird for them because they do see me pop up on the TV uh, yeah. quite often. And they're like, oh, there's mummy, mummy's on the telly. And then so some of their mates at school think I'm famous. One actually asked for my autograph, which was really amusing. Um, and then there was a time when I was in closer magazine or something i can't remember that's terrible someone from closer magazine is probably saying and we've got no idea who she is but a magazine like that and it was when i was bold and my mum had it open on the coffee table and then next to it was the tv times and they were screening some of the harry potter films and there the pitch advertising it was lord voldemort for those of you that know obviously he's as bold as the days long and take went oh look mummy's in the magazine again and pointed at voldemort so <laughs> so for them it's all it's all totally you know they they think that i go away and talk about books and writing and that's all i do and it's really easy and then i stay in hotels so that's what the kids think and but they all they're very aware of that the cat they go you talk about cancer and I'm like yeah so the kids have a very interesting vocabulary and did at the from the from the bottom up really they always knew the words death dead dying cancer blah 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 we've never sugar-coated anything for them we don't want to give them confusing or misleading things like oh you know what happened with Ali? Well, she didn't pass away or she didn't go to sleep and never wake up because you're going to install fear of going to bed in your children yeah. if you say fluffy things like that to them. You've got to be quite black and white when you deal with things like that. And, you know, I've taken both of them to, to chemotherapy with me so that they don't have that unknown. And within five minutes after seeing all the people shuffling about with their bags of drugs and everything, um, and me having this IV and everything, they're bored. They were bored out of their brains and they were over it. Yeah. And that's building resilience in, in my kids. And, and that was a big part of it. Like, you know, whatever's going to happen to me, whenever it's going to happen to me, the lasting effects that I'm leaving behind would going to hopefully be two really well-rounded, resilient children that are strong, but are also in touch with their emotions, feel free to speak about exactly how they feel, and don't have areas where they feel they cannot ever go, whether it be in their mind or physically. You know, and that's yeah. important to me. That's literally ties in nicely with the, my last question was, 
if your children could learn anything from you, what would it be? That humour, although people just waft it off as a defence mechanism, is massively underrated as one of the best medicines that can be prescribed. If you retain your sense of humour in life, you will always have the edge taken off any traumatic situation, not necessarily at the time of it happening, but how you deal with things in the future and always being open and honest about how you feel. And that's not to the point of being walking down the road and saying to somebody, bloody hell, love, you shouldn't be wearing those trousers. It's, it's having respect for people, but about your emotions and about never feeling bad for showing emotion or being upset or, you know, you, you should, if you can always retain really good communication skills, there are so many emotional, mental health problems that can be worked through by basically just talking about them. And I know that's not rocket, rocket science, but fundamentally that is such a key life lesson that I really hope I've instilled in the boys. Well, I'm pretty sure you have love because you instill it everywhere else you go. And they're both very, very lucky to have you as a mother. Very, oh, very lucky. And I mean that from... And I taught them pull my finger. Well, you know what I mean? Top man. <laughs> <laughs> but it's honestly like uh, every time I hear your story and speak to you, I just, I love it even more. And I love you so much. I think you're absolutely insanely, you're a one-off so so honored to know you and i'm so grateful that you came on and and you know spoke about it with me so i hope you've enjoyed it yeah it's been amazing um thank you so much for having me and before you cut me off which i can see your fingers on the button poised ready to go this is the bit where i have to try and um big up myself for anyone out there's listening that's ever desperate for a speaker which was speaker with a difference i'm an unknown I've got a story, it's unique, and I won't leave you crying, unless it's with laughter. Um, Heidi Lachlan, obviously, Um, and if you want to listen to a bit more of my story in depth, there's a book out there called Heidi's Lifeline, which is a really shit title, but it's a cracker of a book, Um, and that's available on Amazon with five-star reviews, um, if you would like it. And Carla liked it, I think. So that's always good. Um, Have I got anything else to say? No. Thank you for listening to me. Sorry about the swearing. You have been listening to the Money Making Mothers podcast with Carla Edwards. If you have enjoyed the show, then leave a five-star review on iTunes. Make sure to tune in next time. And don't forget... You can have it all.